0: Uh, someone said the other day that it would be good to have a little timeline of where we are up to. So can you put that up, Matt, for us? Uh, I just want you to see here, this is, uh, this is the timeline of what we've done so far. That's the ascension of Jesus back in AD 33-ish, give or take. This is where we are, 2015. And so far, this is the kind of thing we've covered. We've been looking at the Council of Nicaea in 325. 3- I keep spelling that wrong. Here's Nicaea in 325. Uh, we've looked at the emergence of the canon starting after Jesus... Uh, ascension and sort of rippling on for the next hundred or so years. Um, and today we're looking at uh, Augustine of Hippo, who, to, for you know, he's not a hippo. Um, <laughs> in 354 to 430, that's when Augustine was uh, knocking around. And you might be thinking, we're spending quite a lot of time in these early years. And that's true. In fact, it's so true that the next thing we're looking at is here in the 16th century. So you might think, well, did just nothing happen in between... Augustine's death in the beginning of the Reformation? The answer is no. Um, There's plenty there. And if we had more weeks, we'd spend a lot more time in those uh, years. But one of the reasons uh, for doing it this way, so the guy we're looking at tonight, Augustine, is such an important figure that understanding him will actually set the scene for the next few hundred years worth of debates and controversies in the church, and we can pick it up uh, at the beginning of the Reformation in the 16th century. And as we look at Augustine today, we're going to grapple with a massive question, which is of this, who are we? Who are we? And we'll see what I mean by that a bit later on. Thanks, Matt. I'll take that off now. First, though, let's think about uh, this chap, Augustine. We've got a picture of him there. Uh, we actually know much more about uh, Augustine than we do about many other figures in church history, and that's because Augustine wrote the first ever autobiography. Uh, his book called The Confessions. If you've never read it and you want to get involved in Augustine, read that. It's actually really readable, really exciting, uh, well worth reading. Um, It's written as an extended prayer to God. And as the title suggests, it's about Augustine confessing the sins of his youth, confessing to God that he wasted so much of his life before turning to Jesus in repentance. And so the first thing we're going to think about is Augustine's despair at sin. And we'll think about his early life first under that title, A Restless Early Life. Augustine was born in 354 in North Africa to a Christian mother called Monica and a pagan father who died pretty soon. Uh, And Monica watched in tears as her son abandoned his mother's faith pretty early and he sort of concreted his abandonment around the time he left home to become a law student in Carthage. He did what many students do, as I'm sure you know uh, only too well, that is flirt with lots of new and exciting philosophies and flirt with, flirt with lots of new and exciting girls. That's what he basically spent his university years doing. Um, he started living with a girl he wasn't married to. She uh, had a son with him. He actually lived with her for 15 years and he went through lots and lots of different philosophies and belief systems. He was for many years a member of a sect called the Manichees. Not Manatees, that's different. Manichees, named after their founder, a guy called Manny. Manny reckoned that the universe was divided into two equal forces, light and dark. He was like a proto-Jedi. And uh, he said, Manny said, that we are mostly darkness. But trapped inside us is a spark of light that we can release through various spiritual disciplines, including vegetarianism. So, you know, I'm out. I'm out straight away. That's not happening. There might be good reasons to be a vegetarian. Releasing your inner spark is probably not one of them. So if you are a vegetarian for that reason, please uh, have some meat. Um, but Augustine absolutely loved this stuff. And he also loved two or three other philosophies that he sort of fell into around the same time. He was never quite satisfied with any belief system that the world had to offer him. It's, this is the idea of him being restless. He'd he'd subscribe to a new system for a few years, but then he'd see its flaws and it'd move on. He was just restless all the time. And that restlessness came from a real drive to try and find meaning in the universe, and also a real drive to try and find healing for his own conscience. Augustine became deeply affected by the fact of his own sin, even before he became a Christian. He'd heard the preaching of a guy called Ambrose, a Bishop Ambrose. And he loved what he heard, but he thought himself too bad to be a Christian. He thought there was no way he could make the grade, primarily because of his sexual habits. You see, what Augustine came to know in his early years and after a few years after university, he came to know that he was a sinner, but he couldn't understand why nothing he tried seemed to stop him sinning. In fact, and here's the important thing. He couldn't understand why he loved sinning so much. He reflects on a time in his youth when he and a bunch of his mates got a bit rowdy and stole a load of pears from a big pear tree near his house. There is an example of a pear. Um, the The pears weren't very nice. They didn't look very good. He didn't actually want to eat them. They just threw them away. Why did he steal them? He said, well, I just wanted to do the wrong thing. He said this. He's reflecting on it later. I had no motive for my wickedness except wickedness itself. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved the self-destructions. I loved my fall. Not the object for which I'd fallen. He didn't love pears, but my fall itself. It's going to be very important later. Augustine realized that his heart was broken and sinful. It wasn't that he wanted to do the right thing and couldn't do it. It's that what he really wanted was to do the wrong thing. He loved sinning. In fact, he confesses that one of his favorite prayers, you may have heard this, he used to pray all the time, Lord, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. Chastity and continence, by the way, he means purity and self-control. Lord, grant me purity and self-control, but not yet. That's a telling prayer, isn't it? Uh, He wanted to be pure, but actually a lot more than that he wanted to sin. So how did Augustine find rest? Well, he found rest... In Jesus, thanks, man. That came home when he met a Christian uh, called Ponticianus. They just had good names in those days, didn't they? Ponticianus. He came to his house and noticed that Augustine was reading the Book of Romans, and he congratulated Augustine on reading the Book of Romans. And he started talking about how he, Ponticianus, had become a Christian. Ponticianus and a friend of his had been reading a biography of a monk, his name was Antony, by our old friend Athanasius. You remember Athanasius from a couple of weeks ago? He was the guy who was so good at defending the truth that Jesus is fully God. He'd written this little biography of this guy, Antony. And Pontus Janus and his friend read this book. And Pontus' friend, I'm just going to call him Ponti. Ponti's friend said this to him on the screen. Um, tell me, no, that's not the right one. So once this starts, tell me, I beg of you, doesn't matter fine we lost it he says tell me I beg of you what do we hope to achieve with all our labors what is our aim in life can we hope for any higher office in the palace than to be friends of the emperor and in that position what is not fragile and full of dangers whereas if I wish to become God's friend in an instant I may become that now this chap saw that he could be friends with God through forgiveness in an instant and get lasting security forever and Pontesianus was converted to, and he was telling Augustine all of this. And as he was doing it, Augustine suddenly experienced a real sense of conviction for his sin. He says this. While he was speaking, Lord, still not the right one. We'll get there in a minute, man. While he was speaking, Lord, you turned my attention back to myself. You set me before my face so I should see how vile I was. How twisted and filthy, covered in sores and ulcers. And I looked and was appalled, but there was no way of escaping from myself. He suddenly realized how sinful he really was. And in anger at himself, he stood and started shouting at his friend Olypius. And he said, now we can have this. What is wrong with us? What is this that you have heard? Uneducated people are rising up and capturing heaven. And we, with our high culture without any heart, see where we roll in the mud of flesh and blood. He stormed out into the garden, leaving his friends completely astonished. They didn't have a clue what to do, and Augustine started pacing around the garden. He, he wanted to join Ponticianus. He wanted to have forgiveness. He wanted to be cleansed, but he was feeling the pull of his old life and the sin that he loved dragging him back down. He describes it like this. We've we got this, Matt. Brilliant. Vain trifles and the triviality of the empty-headed he's talking about his sinful behavior, my old loves held me back. They tugged at the garment of my flesh and whispered, "Are you getting rid of us?" You see, he, he was compelled by Jesus, but he loved his old life too. and it's almost as if his old life was saying to him, "Stay with us, don't leave us." But he also felt God drawing him to himself. In the Confessions, he imagines Lady Continence, Continence again being purity, self-control, a pure and holy woman surrounded by Christians whose pure lives Augustine found so appealing and so wanted to imitate. And he imagines Lady Continence saying this to him, do you think these Christians capable of achieving this by their own resources and not by the Lord their God? Their Lord God gave me to them. Why are you relying on yourself only to find yourself unreliable? Cast yourself upon him. Do not be afraid. Augustine was pulled in these two directions as he walked around the garden in his home. He wanted to become a Christian, and yet he wanted to sin. He had two wills battering against each other. Suddenly he heard a child singing a little song from a nearby house. The song had the words in Latin, tolle lege, tolle lege, which means pick up and read, pick up and read. So Augustine did what he was told, ran inside, picked up the book of Romans and read the words that are on your sheets. Not in riots and drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. Augustine read these words and at that moment decided to heed God's call and reject his old sinful way of life. He repented and believed, and he said these words. At once, with the last words of this sentence in Romans 13, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. His friend Olypius actually became a Christian too, the same moment. And the first thing he did was to go and find his mum, Go and tell Monica, who'd been praying for him with tears for decades. Augustine's despair at sin was over. As he puts it at the beginning of the Confessions, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That's Augustine's story. It's obviously a brilliant one. A great testimony to God's kindness and to the power of a mother's prayer. But there's another reason it's important to spend time on that. It's because it helps understand why Augustine was so critical of another man who despaired of sin, a guy called Pelagius. You have a picture of him uh, on your thing there. Actually, that picture was drawn in the Reformation in the 16th century. Pelagius was a British guy. There's some debate as to whether he was Welsh or Irish. If you translate his name into Old English, it comes out as Morgan. Look you. But, uh, which is why people think he's Welsh. But another contemporary said that the Pelagius talked so much nonsense because he was stuffed full of Irish porridge. So, you know, I don't know. Either way, Pelagius was horrified at sin. In this case, not his own, but other people's. When he came to Rome in 383, he was shocked at the worldliness and the sinfulness of the Christians in Rome. And Augustine, at this point, thought, brilliant. Here's a good guy. I actually agree with him. I'm glad that someone is taking a stand against what I can see too that Christians are behaving pretty poorly. But Augustine soon realized that Pelagius' reasons for being so shocked weren't good. Pelagius, you see, had been taught rightly that men and women are guilty before God because of sin. And he'd heard rightly that God was right to punish sinners because they're responsible creatures who have freely chosen to sin. And so Pelagius reasoned like this, if we are responsible creatures who have freely chosen to sin, then we must also be free not to sin. God would not require us to meet a standard which is impossible for us to meet. He wouldn't create people to meet a certain standard without making it possible for them to meet that standard. And so he thought, it must still be possible for men and women to keep the law. It must be possible to be sinless purely through the faculties God has given us. And so he wasn't interested in anyone's excuses for sin. Here's what he says. He's quoting other people's excuses. It's hard. It is difficult. We are not able. We are men. Oh, blind madness. We accuse God of a twofold ignorance. that He doesn't seem to know what he has made nor what he has commanded. As if forgetting the human weakness of which he is himself the author, he has imposed laws on man which he cannot endure. I say that man is able to be without sin and that he is able to keep the commandments of God. So Pelagius thought. Why then did people sin? Pelagius's answer was basically that they had bad influences. They copied bad examples. Adam's sin was the first bad example and since then everyone's copied Adam and added their own embellishments and improvisations, sin and evil going from bad to worse. So what do we need? Well, Pelagius said we need grace. Now, that's surprised, surprise, doesn't it? Pelagius says we need grace. But what does he mean by grace? He means the giving of God's law and the example of Jesus. That's, by the way, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the importance of words and the precise use of words. Pelagius said, we we need grace. But what he meant was, we need the law, and we need Jesus' example. That's not what I mean by grace. Well, I mean, those are gracious gifts of God, aren't they? Which show people how to live. But Pelagius said, basically, well, mankind is faced with a choice. You can either imitate Adam and continue in sin... Or you can imitate Jesus and obey God's law. You don't need any help. You've got everything you need. We're created with free will, says Pelagius. We're free to choose the good. We just have to do it. So, you know, just do it. That was Pelagius' pastoral advice. Stop it. So, what was Augustine's answer to this? Um, well, his answer was written in the form of about 700,000 words over about 10 years. So we're going to summarise it very quickly. Um, but we can think about it in three broad categories. The first part of response was about the bondage of the will. This is where Augustine's experience is so helpful and so formative for him. Augustine just didn't recognise Pelagius' explanation of the experience of trying to obey God, that all we have to do is just do it, that we're free to choose the good. Remember in the garden... In Augustine's experience, it wasn't just that he wanted to do good things but failed. Very often, he just didn't want to do the good things. Augustine wasn't in despair over why he didn't do the things he wanted to do. He could do whatever he wanted to do. The trouble is that Augustine despaired over why he couldn't change what he wanted to do. In the Confessions, he says this. I think this is on the the screen. Yeah, The mind commands the body... And is instantly obeyed. The mind commands itself and meets resistance. The mind commands the hand to move and it's so easy. The mind orders the mind to will, yet it does not perform it. You see, you can hear him in the garden there, can't you? I want to not want to sin, but I can't not want to sin. That's what he's struggling with. If we want to move our hands and use our bodies to do it, that's easy. If we want to use our bodies to sin, absolutely no problem at all what's hard is changing what we want to do now augustine didn't just get that from his own experience it's very dangerous to simply reason from your own experience the bible tells us our interpretations of our experience are often wrong but augustine had good biblical reasons for believing that pelagius was wrong about the freedom of our will because augustine when he read his bible saw the language not of freedom but of slavery so i put a couple of examples that augustine himself used on the sheets. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Romans six: When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And Jesus, speaking in John eight thirty four, I tell you the truth: whoever, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. You see, Pelagius talked a lot about the freedom of the will. And we often hear people talk about having free will these days, but we've got to realize, as Augustine did, there are actually two types of free will. There's the freedom to do whatever it is we want to do. And unless God decides to, he wants to frustrate us by putting circumstances in our path, we have that freedom. By and large, we can do what we want. We're not puppets. When people sin, they don't sin against It's not as though some malign force grabs them and they're going no i don't want to do it no we, we do what we want don't we we want to do the wrong things and we do them but augustine knew from experience and read in the bible that's not the only kind of freedom we need in order to live the sinless life that pelagius was after it's not enough that we have the freedom to do whatever we want in order to do the will of god we need to have the freedom to change what it is we want to do and that freedom we don't have. We are slaves to sin, the Bible says. And you can't just stop being... Slaves can't just decide they're not going to be slaves anymore. It doesn't work like that. We can't make ourselves want to obey God from the heart because our hearts are corrupted and sinful. Which means, by the way, that any uh, good things that we do as non-Christians still proceed from a corrupted heart. They're not, they're not good in God's sight because they don't come from a a desire to obey God. In Augustine's words, we sin voluntarily, but necessarily. We sin voluntarily, but necessarily. We're we're slaves to sin. It's a necessity for us. We need to do it. We can't not do it. But at the same time, we also want to do it. We want to sin. So, When Pelagius said, well, we're responsible, Augustine said, yes, we're responsible, but we're also helpless. That's what the Bible tells us. But why are we helpless? How did we become slaves to sin? Well, Augustine's answer was to disagree with what Pelagius said about what happened when Adam sinned. That's the second plank of his answer, the concept of original sin. Remember that Pelagius said that Adam simply set as a bad example... And so we can either follow his example or not. If we sin, we follow Adam's bad example, and that's bad. If we do the right thing, we follow Christ's good example, and that's good. But again, Augustine read in his Bible a different story. It's not just that Adam is a bad example. It's that he was their head of the human race. Our human father and our representative and his actions had a knock-on effect for all of us. Adam's sin both broke the relationship between man and God, for for mankind forever, and the curse which was given to Adam was passed on to all his descendants. You can just see that in the Bible. In Genesis 5, for example, Genesis 4 and 5, as every descendant of Adam experiences the curse of death, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. All of us are therefore born outside of relationship with God, and born with a corrupted nature and a broken heart that doesn't love God. Augustine pointed to verses like these. I'll put it on your sheet. Surely I was sinful at birth, says David. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's actually earlier than birth, isn't it? Um, 1 Corinthians 15. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die. So in Christ all be made alive. One of the criticisms that Augustine had of Pelagius was that Pelagius' view of who we are was very individualistic. We're all just sort of individuals, disconnected from everyone else. And when we sin, you know, that we sin, but then we just go back to it doesn't change us at all sin. We're just sort of machines that either do the right thing or do the wrong thing, and then we just sort of reset. Augustine says, no, we're a race. We're made as a people. And in Adam, everyone has died. And in Christ, all will be made alive. And Romans 5, many of you studied in close detail this year already. It was a big thing for Augustine. Now, we're going to take a little detour here because, unfortunately, that's the biblical argument. This is the not-so-biblical argument. Augustine also continued to use one line of argument quite a lot. It wasn't so great. Pelagius and Augustine both approved of the baptism of infants. And Augustine, who'd been influenced in this by another guy called Cyprian... He said the reason was for that was that baptism washed off the stain of original sin, so that if children die in childhood, they would go to heaven. It was all going so well. The reason Augustine used this argument a lot because, is because he wanted to show Pelagius that there was a huge inconsistency in his thinking. He was saying to Pelagius, "Look, you're contradicting your own argument. If you think that we're born sinless and innocent and perfect, then what are you doing going around baptizing infants? See, I've got a good reason for doing it. I see they're born in Adam, outside of God's will, and they need to be brought into the church through baptism and have all that stain washed off. Uh, but you haven't actually got a good reason for it. And so, Pelagius, you show that you're outside of the mainstream of Christian thinking. You're a heretic. And okay, I can see why you use that argument, but we've got to be honest that there's some stuff in Augustine's thinking that's not so great. I think that's a pretty dodgy view of what baptism actually does. And basically, Augustine does have far too high a view of the church as an institution, of the sacraments of baptism and communion. He thinks they're sort of ways in which the grace of God comes to people and objectively cleanses them by partaking of baptism and communion and being part of the church And he says, you know, outside of the institutional Catholic Church, he says there's sort of no salvation and things like that, Um, which isn't very helpful. That's why he's so important as we think about the rest of church history. That's why he sort of dominates the next 15 years. Augustine taught a view of sin and grace that we, I certainly as a Protestant, find very familiar, generally very happy with. But he taught a view of the church and the sacraments that the Roman Catholic Church would take with and, and run with in quite unhelpful directions. Our old friend, B.B. B. Warfield, actually said this. The Reformation was just the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. That's what I reckon is just happening there. We just, one, one, side, one half, decided to go with Augustine's doctrine of grace. And the other went with his doctrine of the church. Um, we can talk about that next week. we we'll look at that. But back to the point. That's just to say, by the way, that as we look at guys in church history, as we think about ourselves, there's going to be many things that we don't get right. And um, God, in his kindness and his grace, uses folk even though we make mistakes. And uh, that why, that's why we need to keep going back to the Bible, keep reforming ourselves, keep checking that what we do and what we believe and what we practice uh, are taught us in Scripture. Uh, otherwise, we'll end up in a bit of a mess. Back to the point. Augustine refuted Pelagius on the biblical basis of our slavery to sin. We've seen that, which we inherited from Adam. And and we, we carried on. But Augustine isn't satisfied with simply quoting Bible verses at Pelagius. Like Athanasius a few weeks ago, he wants to talk about the whole logic of salvation, to show that if you agree with Pelagius, the whole gospel falls apart. And in particular, he wants to show that Pelagius is ruining the glory of Jesus. This is a really helpful point to grasp properly. Imagine, if you will, a seesaw. And on one half of the seesaw, one side of the seesaw is the glory of mankind. And the other half of the seesaw is the glory of Jesus. And in general, the better we think of mankind, the less we think of Jesus. And the better we think of Jesus, the less we'll think of mankind. So the thing is, if Jesus is our Savior, then how good a Savior he is depends on what he's saving us from. So let's play a game. Imagine that the big problem of the human race is that we are physically unattractive. We are ugly, ugly people. What kind of saviour would we need? Shut a, a makeover artist. A beautician, yeah, we we need a beautician, don't we? We need someone to to make us look pretty. Now that, uh, massive respect for beauticians, not terribly high status, not that impressive as a saviour, if that's the problem with the human race. Imagine that the big problem is that we are uneducated. What kind of saviour do you need? A teacher. Slightly better. Teachers are okay. Sorry, I'm being very very cruel. Uh, But you know what I mean? Slightly more glory. Uh, What if the big problem is that we are unwilling to do what we need to do. What do we need? A motivator. motivator. That's what we need, a motivator. That's what Pelagius said we need. We need some motivation. Um, Later people who took Pelagius' ideas and tried to sort of moderate them a bit said that the big problem was that we're sick. What do we need if we're sick? A doctor. And that's a bit better. Jesus uses that metaphor himself. But do you see the point? You need to work out what the problem is to understand who the savior is and the worse you think the problem is the better the savior has to be and augustine saw time and time again that the bible describes as not as uneducated not as merely unwilling or just sick the bible calls us dead Saw that in ephesians 2 you're dead in your sins so if we're dead what do we need we need a creator you see pelagius had bigged up god as a Creator. He said, well, look, God's a good creator. He made us to obey him, so he's got to give us all the tools that we need to obey him. But what he hadn't seen in scripture is that we've killed ourselves. Pelagius didn't really see the problem at all. And Augustine said to him, you have glorified the creator at the expense of the savior. In other words, Jesus is just not as good as his father. The father's a creator, but Jesus is just sort of a motivator. And so Augustine says, just like Athanasius, think about the logic of salvation. If the problem is death, then what we need is a creator. And if Jesus is our saviour, then he deserves equal glory to God. The seesaw on the human side has to be as low as it can possibly be, and so the seesaw on Jesus' side is as high as it could possibly be. We've got no right, the New Testament authors have no right to worship Jesus, unless he's the creator, and we wouldn't need a creator if we weren't dead here's what he says on the screen. Christ came to us. To whom? To the worthy? Nay, but to the unworthy. For Christ died for the ungodly and for the unworthy, though he was worthy. We indeed were unworthy whom he pitied, but but he was worthy who pitied us. To whom we say, for thy pity's sake, Lord, free us. Not for the sake of our preceding merits, but for thy pity's sake, Lord, free us. And for thy name's sake, be propitious to our sins, not for our merit's sake. see, the big problem that Augustine was worried about in Pelagius' theology was that in, in some way glory goes to us. If we can contribute anything to our salvation, that at some point we take some credit and Jesus loses a little bit. If I contribute my good works, as Pelagius says, then I take quite a lot of credit. It's slightly difficult, actually, to what, see what credit God gets at all, or why Jesus had to die. It ends up being very cruel. There are very few full-on Pelagians these days. Seventh-day Adventists get a bit close. But there are still Christians who will want to say that the problem is not quite as bad as all that. Armenian theology which we'll come to another week is sort of semi-ish pelagian it says well no it wasn't right about that. our works are very bad and we do need forgiveness but we can do something and the thing that we can do is have faith we can without you know much help we can have faith we can't heal ourselves but we can get ourselves to the doctors that's what Armenian theology says our many implies that our will is not corrupted or broken by the fall. We can still want to do the right thing. We can still want to have faith. And Augustine in Ephesians 2 says, no, faith is not your own. It is the gift of God. If we are dead, then even faith is a miracle. Yes, faith is an act of our will, but without God acting first to choose us, we would never have chosen God. That's what we were seeing this morning in 1 Corinthians, wasn't it? And Augustine loved to quote this verse from Jesus. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Jesus chose us before we chose him. You see, Christians now can be godly and put sin to death. Augustine was equally annoyed as Pelagius was with the worldliness of Christians in Rome, but he didn't want them to do it through their own unaided efforts. Christ has brought us from death to life and empowered us to live lives worthy of him, and so only he gets any credit for salvation and for any good works we do. The final quote from Augustine is this, nothing is ours except the sin that we have. That's the only thing we contribute to our salvation, is sin. For what have we that we did not receive? Quoting 1 Corinthians. Just got one implication. To ask you this, what is theology? What is theology? What is church history? In many ways, it can be seen as the struggle for two things, the struggle to see ourselves rightly and see Jesus rightly. That's what the last 2,000 years have been about. Can we see ourselves rightly? Can we see Jesus rightly? John Calvin said this, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. Uh, We need to keep going back to the scriptures to ask, who is Jesus? Keep going back to ask, who are we? It's a really helpful tool for evaluating a particular theological position, actually, to ask carefully, what does it do to the seesaw? What does it say about who I am? What does it say about who Jesus is? Does it drag me down and big Jesus up while it's probably varying on okay? And as a church, as we've been thinking about the church over the last ten years, we've got all sorts of temptations to big ourselves up and give ourselves credit, and we'll face the same over the next ten years. But Augustine very helpfully points us back to Jesus and says, we just can't do it because of who we are. We are dead in our sins. There's nothing we can do but praise God. He has sent us a saviour who is worthy to meet our need. He sent us a creator who is worthy to be worshipped as God himself. And that's what we're going to do in the words of our next song, but I'm just going to pray before we do that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have brought us dead sinners to life in Jesus. Father, forgive us for taking any credit for our salvation, any credit um, for the good things we do. Help us to remember just how poor we are and how rich and how good is the Lord Jesus. And please help us to live lives worthy of the gospel through your grace and your empowering alone, and may we give you all the credit for it. Keep us as a church speaking about sin, telling the truth about who we are, that we're dead in sins, and keep us preaching the gospel of salvation through grace alone, through faith alone, which is not of ourselves, but is the gift of God. In Jesus' name, amen.